Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brother Cousins Podcast, episode 54. You're here tonight with all three brother cousins, Jared, Jeffrey, and Christopher. And we are wrapping up our October 2022 series about the God of the living. It has been a really uh, interesting month as we've dived into some scriptures that maybe are considered a little spooky. Some of the content has been out of the norm as we look beyond the veil of this mortal life and see what lays beyond. And I hope that all of you have picked up on the theme that we have been moving closer and closer from the periphery to the center of life as we know it, which is the truth of God and eternal life in Jesus that we have. And we talked about that in the last episode too. But um, today we are going to wrap up with a couple of examples of resurrections of saints in the scripture that happened after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what we're going to look at is the emphasis of the impact that had on other people. And so we're going to talk about those things today. And we hope that you'll find the content interesting and, and helpful as you also strive to be a person who is uh, indwelt and in live by the Spirit of Christ. So let's jump right in, guys. First, thing that we want to look at here is the saints of Jerusalem. This, I actually had a friend of mine I used to work with uh, who is an atheist and not just like a doubter. Like, I'm not sure. He was like, there is no, absolutely, there is no God. And he was militant. He was evangelistic in his atheism. Uh, I've never met another person quite like him. But he pointed to this passage of scripture and told me that it sounded like something out of a horror movie. And I found that, I mean, shocking that he would say that. But when you really look at it from a worldview that does not allow for the existence of a God who rules over life and death, then yeah, this is kind of a scary passage. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28, excuse me, uh, 27, and we're going to pick up in verse 50. So here's how the New King James reads. It says, uh, this is the death of Jesus. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And now here's where things get really strange. It says, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Okay. I think it's interesting to think about what it would have been like to be there on that day. You would have seen a man that many thought was innocent being put to death. And I'm sure these soldiers put lots of Jews to death, so that was no big deal. But during his resurrection, the sun went dark, and it stayed dark for a long time. I mean, this wasn't just an eclipse, right? I mean, it, it went dark. And after he died, a crazy earthquake and graves and if you have to think about, you know, their graves were different than our graves. Our graves are a hole in the ground on a concrete vault 
and a headstone. That's not what we're, we're not talking about a coffin popping up out of the dirt. We're talking about a tomb that was made of a cave or hewn out of the rock with a stone rolled over there and fixed so that it couldn't open. So in a situation where you have a big earthquake, these stones are falling over, right? And then these places that you want shut are now open to the whole world. And so this would have been a very scary thing for anybody living in Jerusalem. I mean, to have an eclipse, people were scared of those things, you know, what they thought was an eclipse, or to have an earthquake was scary. But to have both of those things happen at the same time, at the moment they were killing a guy who claimed to be God, it would have been terrifying. So the question that I have here for you guys is about the timeline here, because I'm not 100% sure what's happening. The, the way that Matthew records it here, there was an earthquake when Jesus died. And as I understand it, this earthquake caused those tombs to be opened when the rocks split, right? Now it says that many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And it seems that that happened right then. But then verse 53 says, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. So what do you guys think? Did these, did these saints arise at the death of Jesus and stay in those tombs until he was resurrected and then came out? Or were they resurrected when he was resurrected and then they came out after Jesus? I don't know. Y'all's thoughts on this situation. I think to reconcile the passage, I mean, you're thinking about this in the time span of a few days. Right. Jesus said he was going to die, and three days later, he was going to be raised. Mm -hmm. I think it's completely plausible for the tombs to be opened through this earthquake and these massive boulders to fall apart and crack open, and the likelihood of them being able to find replacements is pretty slim within a few days. And Agreed. so I think just reading this, the tombs are now open and they probably stayed open for a few days. And then by the power of God, um, they were raised when Jesus was raised. Now, to me, the question is why? Because God has the ability to raise one person, Jesus. Mm hmm but he chose to almost allow this ripple effect to happen. It seems. Yeah. So I'll, I'll put that one on hold. If Jared has something he wants to add in this particular, to answer your question, Christopher, but I want to get to that question as well. All right. So I was just looking through some stuff. There's a lot of, imagery here or, yeah. or things that have been used as imagery throughout the old Testament, particularly imagery that heralds the changing of world power or the changing of a government earthquakes, fire, and have been shaken. Yeah. Yep. And that's here, not in prophecy, not in imagery, not in apocalyptic language, but in reality. Yeah there's an apparent change happening and it, it upsets natural order as it were. Mm 
because God did what God doesn't do, which is die. God is eternal. He is existence. And his son enters history, thus enters time, and has a time where he ceases to be. Mm-hmm. And with the coming of his kingdom, the changing of what the world understands as power in Jesus Christ and how he demonstrates power in his kingdom, God shows that change in the literal earthquake, darkening of the sun, all of, all of the things that Jews would have recognized as apocalyptic language, God demonstrates with the death of his son on the cross. And not only that, but bodies of saints who were asleep. And it's interesting to me that we're not given a time frame on how long some of these people had been gone. Yeah. So we're not necessarily talking about recently deceased. And who knows who these people were that had come forth. But it was evidenced enough that it could be written down and testified to and not refuted. Yeah. And so we have some strength to that testimony because people couldn't say these people didn't come back from the dead. No, you're lying. It didn't happen. But when Jesus, the embodiment of the living God, passed from life to death, it turned everything that Satan thought he knew on its head and unleashed the power of life, as it were, back into those and reanimated those whose bodies had lost animation. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point, Jared. You know, whenever we have a overturning of a government nowadays, and even, in, I mean, especially in those days, I would say more so in those days, when powers turned over, people died. I mean, it was it was a bloodbath, usually. I mean, Book of Daniel, um, that night when there was the handwriting on the wall, uh, Darius the Mede attacked and Belteshazzar was slain, right? So, I mean, whenever humans change kingdoms, people die. But whenever Jesus died to bring about his kingdom, people lived. Different king, different kingdom, different signs. So, Jared, I'm going to come back to some of these, the imagery and the language that is used here. And just toss out an idea and see what you guys think about it. Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Yeah, that's where I was. Um, read 11 through 14. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. 
So, I mean, there's an obvious translation there that is specifically to Israel. And that could be considered the already. And then you move into this. And I, I think that that narrative fits what's happening here um, to be the already again, which sets up a not yet later on. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I was looking at that and looking at that language. I was like, man, that's very, very similar to what it seems happened in Matthew 27. And he carries that thought in the prophecy of against Gog and there's earthquakes there. And it, he chapter 38 ends. The thought hasn't ended in 38, but so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And, you know, this goes back to something we've talked about before. When God does something, it is known that God has done it. When God led the people out of the land of Egypt. It was known that God had done it. When God brought the walls of Jericho down, it wasn't through his ability to scheme something to bring the wall down. It was from his people being obedient in faith, only faith in his, his faithfulness to bring the walls down because they did what he said, even though it made no sense to walk around. When God does something, it's known that he is the one that did it. And, you know, we see Ezekiel's humanity in chapter 37. Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> it's, I, and, and I'm just reading myself into this, I guess. But, you know, hey, it doesn't make any sense to me, but you're God. Yeah. Um, and that the right there may be the answer to my question about why this ripple effect. Right. Um, but it's God's demonstration of his power. And there's so much happening here that, it, and it's, it, I really like Jeffrey that you brought in the already not yet. There's so many places in the new Testament where Jesus says, have you not read? Yeah. And he is giving an elongated view of a passage that they feel like they had down pretty well or, or likely is, is what I read there. And he's telling them, you haven't understood the fullness. You understand this snippet, you get this point, but elongate your view and look past your flesh. And what Jesus has done has taught all of humanity to look past the flesh. Mm -hmm. And shown us that there are real consequences and, and bring it down into context specifically for what Jesus did on earth and in the heavenly realm, that it reverberates so much that caused a literal rock splitting earthquake and brought dead people out of the grave. And God reanimated those bones and brought hope and and with that reanimated people's hope reanimated people's faith in God's faithfulness because it was always there but we see especially during this time when Israel has 
section themselves off into different groups that they don't know where to put their trust. We, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees a lot. And we, we hear about the zealots, um, but there's so many groups that think the way we do this is by these means. And largely they had missed the boat and their faith was drying up. It was like those dry bones, but mm. what Jesus accomplished at the cross and, and, you know, we're, we're here at the cross, but it was, life-giving power in his death because people literally walked out of their graves. As a side note, guys, you remember that song we used to sing at Stratford growing up out of the blue book called The Trial of Jesus? In the, the last verse, you, we sang about what happened in Matthew 23, 50. I remember that vividly. I can remember sitting on the pew with you guys and your parents singing this song that talks about this thing that happened. Anyway, that stirs up a memory for me that we had growing up over at Stratford, but it's a amazing thing. And Jeffrey, to as to your why, I, I just think it was to demonstrate the powers of heaven are shaken, and this this Jesus was who he claimed to be. And people tried to shut that up. People tried to say, "No, nah, Jesus, you know, they came and stole his body away." But how are you going to get past the fact that, hey, 200 people came to grandma's funeral and now they're going to be at her next birthday? <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't really. What are you going to do with that? So I wondered where to unload this. And, and this may be the place. It is striking to me. I mean, these people. Verse 53, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. So he's resurrected, they're resurrected, and they went into the holy city. They went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. And we see this with Lazarus. We see this with our next example, excuse me, with Tabitha. Mm -hmm. There is not a written, recorded account of these people worrying about telling people what they had experienced. Yeah. And what it was like on the other side, so to speak, what it was like going through the veil. We don't see that anywhere. We see the drive. We see these people and I don't know. I'm going to have to use some poetic license and some literature, literary license here mm-hmm. to say that, well, I'll just give my opinion. I think there's consciousness. These people had a consciousness post their body becoming deceased. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think they just, they woke up and went, why am I here in this tomb and in these grave clothes and so forth and so on. They understood what happened. They knew. And we we don't read anything post that they they got up they were compelled by the test or to the testimony of Jesus Christ to go appear to other people because again bringing humanity into it there's the yeah I want to go see my family and tell them about these things but what is this going to do to people <laughs> what you're in the field and you look up and here comes grandpa joe yeah <laughs> I would have I would have came and visited you guys and pretended to be a ghost. 
And I would have done it at night, of course. I would have tapped on Jeffrey's window. Jeffrey. (laughs) I would have had so much fun with that first. And then I would have got serious. You know me. I wonder, Jared, um, if it's not there. I think obviously it's not there for a reason. Right. I think that our human minds, as we began this series, talking about people's overt interest in the veil, passing through the veil, coming back, the the living dead, all those types of things, is that it may have distracted from the point. And the very point is exactly what the result was in the centurion and those who were with him. Truly, this was the son of God. That was the conclusion that people needed to come to. That was the whole point of this is to display the power of God, that Jesus was the son of God. And so to distract us away from that very point would be working against what God really intended. Right. And, you know, I I could play devil's advocate and run the argument that there's a way to present that, that demonstrates the power of Jesus, but just the fact that it happened and that we're not given that we're compelled to focus on the why, because we don't hear from these people after it happens. We don't have their accounts. You're just forced to focus on Jesus died. And because he died, these people lived. And it's, you know, I, th- I think you're right, Jeffrey, and you, and you really got to the point I wanted to get to was all of the focus, all of this wondering and pondering and, and looking in. And not that I think those things are bad. I, it's not bad to consider the end result, which is will be through the veil with the fullness of God and everything that that entails. But we are compelled by these accounts to go but that's not everything I need to be worried about because there's there's work to be done in the meantime. There's something about this account that compels me to go testify about Jesus Christ and life in him. Yeah. There's, there's a point there and it's, it's really obvious, but I think I want to wait to get to it because we've got another story to get to. Uh, Jared, you alluded to it a moment ago, uh, and that's the the raising up of Tabitha slash Dorcas in Acts 9.36. You want to jump on that one and uh, talk to us about it? So starting in verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All widows, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments, which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. He said, Tabitha. Arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. 
And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So this was an astounding lady by the account we have, full of good works. And that is, in my opinion, as high a commendation as anyone can have in Christ Jesus. You throw back to Ephesians, we're created in him for good works. That's why we're recreated in Christ Jesus. That's what she did. And so she's become ill and died, and they've sent for Peter. And it doesn't appear as if they've given up because they haven't buried her. They haven't moved her out. And I don't know. I haven't done the looked at a map recently to see the distance and, and work the travel time. But they've left her in this upper room. And so Peter comes in. He expels everyone and raises her up. But the point of all of it comes down to verse 42 became known throughout all Joppa because they didn't do this thing in the dark. It was known that she had passed away. Many believed in the Lord. Yeah, it's a great story. And sorry, it's an account. It's not a story. It's an account. It's a fact. It's history. You know, one thing that strikes me guys is that it looks a lot like what happened with Elijah and Elisha. You know, minus some of the uh, the things that Elisha did to raise that boy up. But I think it's great that Peter put everybody out. He could have used that as an opportunity to aggrandize himself and and show everybody that he raised this woman up, but I, I like the fact that he put everybody out and he put the focus not on what Peter could do, even through Christ, but the fact that through Christ, this woman now lived. And the way he did that caused people to believe on the Lord. And there's a lot of people who would not be able to resist the temptation to use that power in a way that would draw people to themselves. And there's such a, and, and this is not the point um, of the podcast, but there's such a sneakiness that pride has to us sometimes. People just need to see this to appreciate what God is doing through me. And so we we throw it back to God a little bit, but really we, we just got to be seen. Mm-hmm. And that is the antithesis of what Peter does here. Yeah, it's like when Jesus said, when you pray, don't do it in the open, but go to your room and when you have shut the door. And it's almost like Jesus said, now, Peter, remember one of these days when you raise someone from the dead, you need to go into the room and shut the door (laughs) and and then do the thing. Right. But but yeah, it it uh, that pride is a sneaky thing. And, you know, Peter would get pretty good on himself here and there. But at the at the root of it, he truly was a very humble man. And I think this is a good demonstration. We beat up on Peter a lot for his character flaws, but uh, it's no no doubt that he came all this way. He wanted to do a good work and he wanted the Lord to be glorified. Well, I think that Peter, we give him a hard time for a reason, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. But he had a lot of, because of a lot of those reasons, he had a lot of instances 
that would have brought about some humility. Um, this is later on in the timeline, but I mean, you think about the way that Paul withstood him to the face because of the way that he acted in front of those who were quote of the circumcision. Right. Um, you know, but, but he was also the one who was called in Acts chapter 10 to go and preach to Cornelius. And he, in the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, he stood up and told everybody about the house of Cornelius and how he believed that this is the way that it needed to be. But, you know, he still had some of those instances where maybe some pride popped up and he was humbled and, sometimes that's just what needs to happen. I know that that's happened to me many times over my life. Um, I've had the opportunity to be humbled and I'm not saying that I'm a humble person. My pride manifests itself in different ways in different years, but there's unique opportunities in those humbling experiences. I think a lot of times we point at Peter as a way to sneakily justify ourselves. See, look, look at him. Look at this guy. Yeah. And and there's some, because we see a lot of humanity in Peter, and especially those of us who have been young men who can be a little more outspoken, be a little more headstrong, be a little more prideful. As we age, I think we come to see more and more of ourselves in Peter, but to a much lesser degree. I would hope. And, <laughs> and you know, we, we see him capitalize on this opportunity here where here is a saint, and, and again, full of good works. She is doing, literally doing the Lord's work in her capacity and in her authority. And he doesn't utilize it for self-aggrandizing. He raises her and presents her alive, and then she is allowed to give her testimony. Yeah. And the testimony, evidently, looking at the fruits, was all about Jesus Christ, because many came to believe on the Lord. We're not told that many wanted to come hear Peter talk. Many wanted to come here see Peter's miracles, but many believed on the Lord. And again, we don't have her account of this is what it's like on the other side. This is where we're headed. This is what this is. The power of Jesus Christ is life. And and I'll step in again and use some poetic license here, but I think she could simplify her testimony to that. The power of Jesus Christ is life. As I stand here today to testify to that fact. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring that up, Jared. You know, you think about the way this puts it. Obviously, she was a Christian here. And when it says when Peter had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. So remember that that Dorcas was part of a Christian community who loved her. She was part of the family of God there. And as she's presented to them again, live and whole, she reintegrates into the body of Christ and continues to work and serve in that congregation for however long the Lord wills. 
and you just imagine what that did for the church there. It's like, hey, did you hear about that little group that meets down by the river? Oh no, what happened? Well, one of the one of the people who's part of that community, they were actually dead, and one of their holy men raised them from the dead, and she she's now alive. I mean, think about what that opportunity that gave to the church there, that she was a living testimony to the to the resurrecting power of Jesus and his victory over death. And I think the point needs to be made that we, as we are regenerated in Christ and we are obedient to the gospel to live a new life, have an opportunity like Dorcas did to go through life with a new sense of what life is about. Know that we have passed from death unto life as the new Testament says And we know that we could probably point to people in our congregation who embody that ideal in the way they live. Maybe someone who has come from a a really, really deep life of sin and they have been completely regenerated. And even though that person wasn't dead in an upper room or in a tomb, people who knew that person knew that they were absolutely a goner as far as their spiritual life concerned. But then Jesus happened and look at him now. And we have those people in our Christian communities today. I'm thinking of a couple of people that we worship with right now who by the world were dead to rights, going nowhere. But because of Christ, now they live. And that's something we need to recognize, I think, and and use for the glory of Christ as he would want. So I'm going to tie this account and what we're going to move to next, hopefully give us a transition. The Apostle Paul is who we want to talk about next. Mm-hmm. And in Ephesians 4, and, and I'll start reading in verse 20, he's talking about new life, mm-hmm. literal new life. This is not a figurative thing. This is not a licensure from God that your sins are washed away. You're now in Christ, so you can go live however you want. In verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And he gives a laundry list of things that are specifically different in that new life. It's not a figurative change. It's not intangible, as it were. It is being recreated in God, reanimated in God, in Christ, by God, to be everything that God meant it to be human. To be looked at, remade in the image of his son, and be what God looked at humanity in the beginning and said it is good. Mm-hmm. And and he gives the, the juxtaposition of the two parts here, lays them side by side, and he says, you know who you were, former manner of your life, and it is corrupt through deceitful desires. Mm-hmm. Tabitha or Dorcas appears to have been raised. And with that reanimation, 
was compelled by that new life to go preach Jesus and preach life in his name. And Paul had that same compulsion, that same drive. And now I think we can talk about where he had an instance similar but different. Yeah, I think we can probably kind of preface this by saying that there's room for some interpretation and and different people have different understandings about what happened to Paul. Um, And if it really is Paul who he is describing here. Um, But anyway, we're going to we're going to make a few assumptions. And if anybody listening to this disagrees, man, we would love for you to to write uh, the show, email us and tell us what you think. We'd be happy to to listen to that. But uh, Jeffrey, talk to us a little bit about what the Apostle Paul tells us about in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 9. So I'll go ahead and read it starting out, and I'm going to expand the context a little bit to verse 1 through 10, um, just so that it can, can set me up to talk a little bit about why some of us have come to the conclusion that Paul's talking about himself here. It says in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 12, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So as you alluded to, Christopher, there are people with different understandings, and I'm very open to discussion on this. I've discussed this with many people. I I find it a very fun and interesting conversation. Yeah. The reason I added a couple of those contextual verses um, is just to kind of give us a good idea of what Paul's been doing. So in second Corinthians in particular, one of the major themes throughout that book is Paul defending his authority as an apostle. Right. And he talks about a lot of different experiences that he has, um, which is why he starts out this, this chapter, I must go on boasting. He, he says, I'm going to continue on in this line of thought here, um, even though there's nothing to be gained by it. Um, and he says, now I'm going to talk about visions and revelations. And he says, I know a man. 
Um, and he, he talks about this experience where he, it was an out of body experience. He says, mm-hmm. I don't know if I was in the, or if he was in the body or out of the body, only God knows that. Right. Um, but he was taken up into this third heaven, which if you, if you break down what the third heaven likely means, I mean, there, there's some, some different understandings there. Uh, but most people take it as he had an out-of-body experience that he saw things like the throne room that people aren't usually able to see. Um, it wasn't just he went up into the sky and the clouds. He went beyond yeah. somewhere else. Uh, he now, didn't Jeffrey, go up into space necessarily. Right. Can, can I even interject there? And when yeah. he says in the body, out of the body, I don't know, God knows. It's almost like he's parroting Ezekiel. Like, right. can these bones live? Where you know, right? I mean, it's... Yep. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting connection, this this experience, and they both have a similar thing they say about it. Anyway, sorry, Definitely. go ahead. Well, and then he he goes on to say, you know, I'm not going to boast about myself except in my weaknesses. Uh, he says, I'll tell you about my weaknesses. And he, he goes on to say that. And he says that he's been given some of these weaknesses to help him keep from being conceited, to help him learn that the grace of Jesus, the grace of God is sufficient for him. Mm -hmm. And he ends it with, you know, I'm content with all these hardships and persecutions and so on. So looking at at some of this context, I think it is a fair assumption to say he doesn't want to make this utter boasting claim that he was the guy who did this because that would distract from the point. He says, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Um, but I'm not going to boast about all these things necessarily. But he's also still laying the foundation. Again, bringing it back to the overall theme of this book. He's still laying this foundation of, if you want to challenge my authority here, I've experienced things that people haven't experienced. Yeah. And yet I don't go around throwing that in your face because that's really what was happening in the context is they were saying, you know, he's this, he's that, he's not this, he's not that he's a liar. He's proud. He does the, you know, there were just a lot of accusations mm-hmm. and rather than giving in to some of those accusations, he basically says, I could do that, but I'm not going to. Yeah. And, and he approaches it in a more humble way. So let's dig into what is going on here. Because in my opinion, I don't think I can confidently say that this is a resurrection per se. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it does appear, as I said, a an out-of-body experience where somebody maybe got to peek into a different spectrum. Yeah, um, that's a great a way different to put dimension. It. And maybe in a way that it was even hard to talk about so that people could fathom it. I think that that's, that's what that means. Whenever he says he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. I think it's hard to explain. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I love that sense where Paul's like, you want, you want, you want to brag. Let's, let's have a competition. I've seen things you can't even imagine. And God says, I can't even tell you about it. Stuff that's so amazing that 
to keep me humble because of what I saw, God had to send the messenger of Satan to beat me about the head and shoulders just so it'll keep me in my place. I mean, that's pretty, that's, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, so Jeffrey, there are a couple ideas. You said, you know, I don't think this is necessarily a resurrection. I know there's at least one school of thought that says this is what happened in um, Acts. Oh, I think it's Acts 14. Yeah. Where outside uh, of Derby. Yeah. Outside of Derby, where they thought he was dead. Maybe he was, or maybe he just was unconscious, right? Because they didn't, you know, it's not like they could hook him up to an EKG and make sure his heart was still beating or something. But um, have you heard anything about the idea that maybe this is what he saw when he went to Arabia? And the, um, the assumption there is that he went to Mount Sinai, like where the thing happened, where he went, where Moses went. Do you think that that's an equally plausible thing or is the timeline wrong? I haven't studied it enough to know. I would say I've heard a lot of people uh, mention this passage in Acts chapter 14, where he was stoned, possibly dead, left for dead, and that he had this out-of-body experience in, in that particular time however i i do know some people who who say that the timeline just doesn't really match up there that the timeline because he says if he's talking about himself i know a man who 14 years ago and this particular letter was second corinthians was written around 57 a.d for macedonia and so mm -hmm. if you take that bit of information and you work backwards there uh, the people who you're referring to think that it, it happened more at the end of Acts chapter nine, which is where he went into Arabia right. and so on. Um, now, and whether or not fits, that can do what, go ahead. It also fits in Galatians one. Yes. Uh, verse 15, please God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach among him, the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Okay, if you're not going to confer with flesh and blood, who are you going to confer with? Right. Somebody who's not flesh and blood. And it says, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia. So uh, I think that is pretty fantastic. I used I used to think it was the you know the, the derby incident, but I really do think that there's a lot more credence to this Arabia idea. I I would tend to agree. And now, Jared, I'm going to do some poetic license here. Think about the existential crisis that Saul is going through at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, Acts chapter nine, he is faced with the reality that in his actions that he thought he was on a mission from God and he thought he was doing what he needed to do. He is told what you're really doing is you're working against God and his Messiah and you're hurting yourself. You're kicking against the pricks. Mm -hmm. And as he is faced with all of the heinous acts where he wreaked havoc on the church, he goes to where it all started he goes to Mount Horeb and he's just what am I doing here yeah and then I picture him in this 
I, I wouldn't say pity party because he immediately went to preaching Jesus. But in this self-reflection mode, now all of a sudden he has this vision and he is, he, it's almost like he could see the big picture. And all these things start to come together and he's like, oh, yeah. You know, we, we talked a little bit about um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, people like Moses who wanted to see the fulfillment and they didn't get to. Saul got to and he didn't get it. And now as he's starting to piece these things together, in my mind, he gets to see the fullness of this picture and it drives him hard. Jeffrey, it just became evident to me. Hear me out. Peter, James, and John, they go up with Christ. They see the, the glorified Christ. Who else do they see? Moses and Elijah. Paul didn't get to have that experience. He sees Jesus on the road to Damascus, witness to his resurrection there goes down to Arabia, goes to Mount Horeb, ostensibly, you know, ostensibly, to confer with somebody who's not flesh and blood. Who else did that at Mount Horeb? Moses, Elijah. I'd never made that connection before this moment right now. See, and I, I think that's what Paul's talking about in his poetic language where he says, in the body or out of the body, God knows. I think he's referencing what happened with Elijah where Elijah was not. And I know people make the argument, you know, if he was out of the body, how can he be where God is? And, and again, I'll throw back to Elijah with that because that's exactly what Enoch and Elijah did. The, yep. the body is gone because they are bodily where God is. And with reference, Jeffrey, and I think you explained it well, there are three things that are translated heaven in the new Testament in the Bible as a whole. That's the sky birds that fly in the heavens. They're not, not flying in space and they're not flying in the realm of God where his fullness is fully known. They're flying in the sky. And then we have the planets set in the heavens, the sun set in the heavens. That's obviously space. And then the heaven where we talk about where God is, which is, the realm where his existence is fully known. I think that's what Paul is talking about there. Pretty consistent lines up with what we see in the New Testament about the three things that are called heaven. But I, I think that his initial statement up there was not about was I dead or not, but whether or not this was a vision or God pulled me into his realm, literally right. in reality. And I think, uh, and I'll just say, Jeffrey, I agree with the timeline going to pointing to where he has left Damascus and, and basically been expelled by the brethren there because they're still terrified about who this man is. He's had his entire life shaken to the core, to the soul, as it were, and wants to share that, but he's not ready yet. And people aren't ready for him yet. And then God gives him, and, and I'd, I'd hate to call it a vision because Paul says, I don't know that's what it was, this experience. And I know, mm -hmm. I know all the connotations that that carries in our modern society, but 
that's what he had was an experience of God. Yeah. And then we see this man and, and, you know, verse 11 says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. And I love the way the ESV translates this because it, it gives Paul a little sarcasm <laughs> that maybe, maybe isn't fair, but I think other places show that it probably is. It was anyway, you forced me spiritual gift. <laughs> you forced me to it for, I ought to have been commended by you for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so he is, and he's getting ready to say one of my favorite passages, which is, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And, and that's what he's pointing all of this to. This vision, this experience, this being called into the third heaven was not for me. In fact, because of this, I have a thorn in the flesh. Because of this, I have the messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from being conceited, and I bear that for you. Spend and be spent for your souls. And then we see this man that has had, and, and again, I'm going to operate on the assumption this is Paul talking about himself in a way because he doesn't want to. He's defending his apostleship and his authority. We see him point all of this back to Christ. My grace is sufficient. My power is perfect in weakness. I will therefore boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So Paul says, yes, I'm open with all of you about my weaknesses because it's not about me. Mm -hmm. And we see a man on a mission isn't even strong enough for what the apostle Paul did. And consumed by the mission. Yes. And, and again, if we, if we allow this to be, you know, Acts 9, where he's left Damascus and gone to Arabia, he has this vision, and he is not going about seeking how he can die. He's going about seeking how he can get others to this life. And he's bearing the weight of that thorn, and he's not hunkered off in a hole. Okay, if y'all want to hear what I have to say, y'all can come listen to me. Mm-hmm. He is actively seeking souls and compelled into that new life to be remade in Jesus Christ because he's seen the fullness of it and the end of that and is driven to that mission now. So I know that this is not a fair comparison across the board, but throughout this entire series, one of the the questions that I've continually brought up is, I wish we could see the long-term impact. Mm-hmm. Um, we can make assumptions about Lazarus. We can make assumptions about Dorcas. And even though I don't believe that this is a straight up case of resurrection, it was obviously an experience that completely changed everything. And yeah. you get to see the impact. Right. And so I think that where the comparison is fair is this. They were all impacted by the resurrection of Christ in some way, shape, or form. And you see the impact that it had on Paul going from a zealous Jew wreaking havoc on the church to compelling people to become Christians in every instance 
of his interaction with them. Yeah. And and I would say it's comparable to the resurrection and because whoever he's talking about here, I think we can safely conclude that they saw through the veil that separates what we know of reality from the existence, the fullness of God. And he was, and, and he said, whether in the body or out of the body, whether I was actually pulled through the veil or had a vision, I don't know, but it has utterly changed everything about me. And we see him. And and this is something we've talked about throughout this podcast, because there's another side to this of everyone will be resurrected. First Corinthians 15 says the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Yeah. God is going to defeat death. Death is an enemy of God. And since everyone will be raised, there's a, a negative end to this. And, and I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. There are two types of people at the highest level of abstraction. Those that say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God eventually says, have it your way. Yeah. And there's an eternal separation. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Mm-hmm. Because Paul saw things that cannot be described in human, in human tongue. It just not with our fallenness, not with our brokenness. It cannot be told. And yeah, Christopher, if you want to hit some second Corinthians five, there'd be great. Yeah. I mean, we, I I keep thinking about this passage, Jared, and we've covered it before, but in the same book, Paul says, second Corinthians five, 14, the love of Christ compels us. Like it's like, there's no other choice. I mean, you've got to, you've got to go along with it. Why? Because we judge or we we reckon this, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who should live again, no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I mean, that's his whole, that's his, the crux of the whole matter for him is that I have a new lease on life and I can't blow this one. I got to use this one right. I got to use it just like Christ did. For the one who died and rose again for others. And the conclusion that he draws from this truth is this in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jared, to your point, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that was Paul to a T. And you know, I sometimes lament, and that's maybe the wrong word or the wrong way of thinking about, you know, the way we grew up, guys, we grew up raised by people who were raised, right? And we we grew up with this, not to say that we didn't have our own struggles and that we didn't fall and, and we need the love of Christ as desperately as anybody, but our transformation isn't as drastic as someone who didn't grow up in a family uh, where people love God, or maybe someone who has a background of just catastrophic life destroying sin. But I think that that sense of things are totally different now, sometimes lost on us. 
but Paul knew it and it compelled him. And I, I just want to be more like that. So Christopher, there's a couple of things here, you know, I, and I'm going to try to, to bring back some things that Jared said and then bring it to what you're talking about here. You know, we talked in previous episodes about first Corinthians 15 mm -hmm. and the conclusion that is drawn because Christ is risen and because we also will one day be raised that we are to be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. So whenever we think about the impact that the resurrection of Jesus should have on us, another part of this, a part of our work in the Lord is what you talked about here in second Corinthians chapter five, that we are compelled to teach other people just like Paul was. Mm -hmm. So we see the impact of Jesus on Paul's life. But this is what I want to call our attention to is in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Yeah. Old things have been passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That means because of Christ being in Christ, we are new. That doesn't mean that we are still the same that we were the day before. That doesn't mean that we are, you know, a little bit better because we, we chose to start going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. That's not what that means. It means that we are completely new. And you see this picture of Romans chapter six start to take place where we are baptized into his death. Mm -hmm. We are buried with him in baptism and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Yeah. And the big thrust, I think, in all of these episodes as we've talked about the resurrection is this. Mm -hmm. We want to know the impact. And we see the impact in different pieces throughout these physical deaths and physical resurrections. But what Jesus says is this. If you are in me, you have been raised already. Yeah. And it should change your life already. Mm -hmm. Now we still look for the not yet. Right. But it should have the exact same impact that it did on Paul and potentially Lazarus and Dorcas and so on. So there is an emphasis that Christianity has got some by their own doing, because it's it's what I can remember from my raising and it's what I can here in my own speech, even throughout this podcast series, even though I have come hopefully to a more full understanding, Christianity is not about, and I'm doing air quotes here, it is not about what you leave off. It is about being completely new. Mm -hmm. And there we have Ephesians 4, we have what Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5. You are remade as a human being. And while that means you don't do these things, and Paul puts a lot of emphasis, I don't want to take away from the fact that he emphasizes you leave these things alone. Yeah. But as we think about, let's just think about Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are manifest or apparent, which are these. And he butts that up against or butts up to that mm -hmm. the works of the Spirit. This is who you are. And again, we have Ephesians 2. 
remade for good works. Yeah. And in the resurrection of Christ, in that changing, as it were, of bringing in God's kingdom, being made in Christ anew, where we are a new creation. And that new creation is the image bearers of God's son. We're not just made to not do these things, which is what a lot of the world sees in Christianity. Y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all don't. And while we could acknowledge, yes, we don't live that way. We have to put the emphasis on we do. We do good works. We do these things. We're giving, we're loving, we're charitable. We're looking to serve because God's kingdom is different and we're different because of that. It reminds me, Jared, of, of what Paul said in Philippians chapter three. It's not about what he gave up. You know, he goes through his credentials as a Jew. You know, Christopher, you mentioned that we were raised around this. Paul was raised around this. Yep. You know, he said, if anyone thinks that they can have confidence in the flesh, I have more of a reason to have confidence in the flesh. I was raised in the perfect Jewish family. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, which, you know, briefly breaking that down, there were two tribes that stayed loyal to God's royal line, and the tribe of Benjamin was one of them. So he's in a family that has always stayed faithful to God. That's what he's saying there. He's a Pharisee in terms of zeal. He's a persecutor of the church. He, in terms of righteousness under the law, he was blameless. But listen to what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, all of that life, all of the things that I could have had in that life, he was on the fast track to being one of the best Jews ever. Mm-hmm. But all whatever I had to gain, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Yeah, And he says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish as trash in Waste. order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's not about what we've given up. It's important that we do give it up, right. but in comparison to Christ, it's what we gain and what we gain is Christ. And to your point, Jared, that is a transformation process that we become a new creature and image bearers of him. And we put on his love. We put yep. on his mercy. We put on his wisdom and so on. Yeah, and that's it. I mean, when you consider the life of Paul, and this is something that some peers and I like to talk about because it's it's just with everything else in his testimony, especially as young men, thinking about careers, thinking about setting up for your family and, and being, you know, just simply being able to do what you want to do, even in regards to the kingdom. Paul had it made. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, Jeffrey mentioned being a Pharisee at the time of Christ. From from what I can tell, they were kind of the power to be. And, and there were Sadducees on the Sanhedrin, but these people were it as far as what was going on. Well, and he trained at the feet of Gamaliel. He was who at the time was the teacher. He yeah. was the teacher. And if you take Paul with a thorn in the flesh and look at his writings, yes inspired by the Holy Spirit, but when you look at what the man wrote, I, I love him as an author. 
I love to read the writings of Paul. He was eloquent. He was sharp. He was witty. Mm -hmm. He could cut to the core when he needed to. And, And not that other things don't do that, but this was a man that when he chose to flex could do it. And he says, it was all rubbish to me to gain Christ. What he experienced, again, making the assumption it's Paul that he's talking about in chapter 12, what he experienced on the road to Damascus, and then what he saw changed him to the point where he could give it all up willingly and not just give it up and, and again, go hide. He didn't go put himself in hold, didn't try to separate. He didn't even stay away from Jerusalem, didn't stay away from the, the temple he says, guys, this is what you need to know. And this is who we are because of Jesus Christ that we have taken and crucified. He, he didn't hide. Mm-hmm. He was and driven. Here's, and here's the cool thing about all of this, Jared. We have the opportunity to be the exact same way. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, through our death, burial, and resurrection and the likeness of Jesus we are able to become new creatures and imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Right. Thank you for bringing that back. I, I get to nerding out on Paul (laughs) kind of took off, Um, but it's easy, but but to your point, it's easy to, to be fascinated with Paul. You know, that I can sit and, and talk about that topic. But the point is, is he is striving to be like Christ and the, Mm type of impact that christ had on his life and we share a, an opportunity that's not unique to the three of us everyone has the opportunity to become this new creation and live like paul so we're we're pushing time and and there's so much to this but i, I feel like it's important here because our world is in turmoil yeah and we have an identity crisis across humanity where we're all seeking groups to identify with and places to identify ourselves. And Jeffrey, I love that you brought Romans six into it because it shows the gospel, but it doesn't just show the gospel. It shows the immeasurable impact of the gospel. And I talked about it in our first episode and said I would bring it up again, and I really haven't because there hasn't been a good segue into it, but this is it because this is what drove the Apostle Paul. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, verse 13, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Mm We're seeking somewhere to belong. Our world is hurting because we don't know how to be human. And truth is gone, and it's been taken away from us, and we're all struggling to find that truth. It's right there. We're And, and I say we don't know how to be human, and there's a truth that resides within us that we were created with purpose, for purpose, by being greater than ourselves. And we struggle against that. We kick against that. And God says, I can remake you in your brokenness, mend you and remake you in my son's image to be brought from death to life instruments for righteousness. Sin won't have dominion. 
and you're under my grace. And that grace isn't to be, isn't to be frustrated, isn't be, to be confused, that we can live however we want. It is we are changed to be new people, that old person that was struggling to find identity, to find their way in the world, to figure out what it was all about, is gone. We are Christ Jesus's. Wow. Preach, bro. Well, yeah, we are we are pushing time, and we thank everybody for hanging with us. This has been a really um, intriguing discussion all month long. All these different topics that we've talked about have been fascinating to me. We hope that you've enjoyed these things and have given you reason to seriously consider what's going to happen to you whenever you die. Um, everyone who's listening to the sound of our voices tonight at some point is going to pierce the veil for themselves and see what's on the other side. And we pray that when you do, that you're holding the hand of Christ when you do it, to be your advocate, to be your savior. And so we just implore everyone that if you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus as revealed in the scripture, that you would do that. So we're going we're gonna to sign off for now, and we hope that all of you can join us next month with the series that we'll do then. And as we always do, we're going to close out with a prayer. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come before you in awe and in humility of your power that manifests itself with pure life. Lord, we know that the way of ourselves and the way through our own wisdom is just death. And Lord, we are grateful for the death and the burial and the resurrection bodily of your son, Jesus, that promises us victory over death in a new humanity in you. Lord, we are so far away from where you have called us to be through our own temptation, our own weaknesses, our own selfish desires. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to lay those things down that you've commanded us to lay down and to pick up the things that you have commanded that we pick up to demonstrate our testimony to the world that we have been brought from death to life again. Lord, we pray that you would live in us so vividly that other people are inspired by our life. Help us to be zealous for good works that we've been created toward. Lord, forgive us of our short-sightedness, our selfishness, and help us to live as the one who brought us forward and raised us up so that we might bring forward and raise up others in your name. And Father, we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week, and we'll catch you next time.